All right, so we're going to continue on the Kingdom of God series. Apparently I have a... Uh, can you get rid of that? Somebody left me a staple. Anything good? <laughs> nope. All right. Um, I hope we can finish with this uh, Kingdom of God defined. So, so we're trying to make 12 statements about the Kingdom... And we got through statement eight last week. We finished statement eight. In fact, we spent state, the whole time on just statement eight last week. So uh, do we want to take the time to reread them? Let's not do that. Let's uh, start with um, um, Kyle. Why don't you read statement nine to us? And then uh, there's verses that go with that. So Adam, you get the Matthew 23, 37 through 39. You get John seven seventeen Morgan and uh, um, then uh, Josh can get Romans six twenty three. That and those some of those are well well known verses. Hopefully you know them already without even looking them up. So go ahead, Kyle. Number nine. <laughs> no person can have any ultimate fulfillment, purpose, or joy without the illumination of knowing and experiencing the king, that is, the living word, who was made ma ma sorry, manifest in the incarnation, destruction, and death. Stephen, I, I don't have an updated copy. This is, I had the same one I had last week, which was not updated. <clears throat> so there was a few of, one phrase that he read that I didn't have, that, that I must have added later. All right, so why do we have to say ultimate fulfillment? No one can have any ultimate fulfillment. Because they can have measures of fulfillment, but they're not the real thing. They're just a fraction of it. Right, okay. And you could have uh, false fulfillment, right? Mm -hmm. So you could really have some fulfillment, but not really what you were destined to have from God or something like that. So, does anyone know the difference in theology between the word illumination and revelation? That's probably covered in Grudem, I would think. It's hard to remember. It's been so long since I read in Grudem that much. Uh, is that in Grudem? You do remember talking about it? So, what's the difference? Yeah, but um, be, we have to be a little more specific than that. That's that's mostly right. Daniel, you said you. So when the when the apostles and and the disciples of the apostles wrote the New Testament, that was new revelation. So that would be like new inscripturated words. So we would say that you know the revelation of God in Scripture is closed. Right? There's no one's writing new scriptures. Not even really spiritual guys like Anvesh and Bob Timer. <laughs> no, really, no one's writing new scripture, right? But God does open our uh, eyes to understand it uh, in every generation, and he and often to understand things we haven't seen before in the scripture. You can read the Bible ten times, and your eleventh time through. You can see um, 
you know, uh, things you've never seen before, of course. And we all have that experience every time we read the Bible, pretty much, right? But sometimes you have it like a mega experience. And for me, I've had two different types of experiences. One is kind of a, a step to a plateau where all of a sudden new questions are arising. And I'm like wrestling with, oh my gosh, what is God doing with this? And what does this mean? And what it, is this something I haven't seen? And you're kind of asking, all of a sudden you're asking better questions and you know it's important questions, but you don't know where it's kind of going. Right, and then there's other, and that happens in any academic discipline, right? You know, anything you're learning, that's part of the, you know, there's really plateaus in terms of understanding. And that's a plateau you have to go through where really at a certain point of time, you had just more questions. But then there's other times where the lights are really coming on. And so that's called illumination. And uh, I can still remember one of the, You know, if I had to list the 10 most joyous experiences of my life, I would probably list sitting in my car in my lunch break when I was working in Westchester, Ohio, which is uh, kind of northern Cincinnati uh, for a finance company. And we got bought by a company that was kind of unethical and I was kind of deciding whether I was gonna stay or not because uh, as a Christian, there were things they did that, you know, were kind of questionable and we were commission only so we could work whatever hours we wanted so I started taking three and four hour lunches to read the Bible and, and uh, instead of making sales because you know I already made a good figure for that year anyway and um, I just remember sitting in my car and all of a sudden I started understanding the gospel of Matthew like never before and basically what what uh, what uh, Joel McDermott covers in Jesus v. Jerusalem about Luke is what I saw in Matthew. I saw like the covenant structure of Matthew and that Matthew was really uh, Jesus' covenant lawsuit against the Jews in Jerusalem and, uh, and that none of that stuff has anything to do with the end times like modern Christians think and it all had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and transferring the kingdom from Israel to the church and all, you know I, all this stuff was opening up to me and it was like, this is the hundredth time I read Matthew. And now all of a sudden, it all comes together. So often illumination kind of happens that way. You know, I, one of the funniest guys I've ever worked with and uh, uh, actually sa said that he stopped reading after Matthew and Mark because like Luke seemed like it was a lot of the same stuff as Matthew and Mark. And I was like, like you can read it a hundred times and you'll get more out of it, right? <laughs> So, illumination is kind of an important word. And what, what do we mean by the living word versus the written word? Yeah, Jesus, of course, is called the word of God, right? In John chapter 1, Revelation 19, lots of places. And he is referred to as the living word of God. And the written word of God is about Jesus, Somebody rattle off a scripture without looking about how, that tells us the written words about Jesus. Very good, John. One, one. John one one, right? Anyone? Anyone else? Yeah. Anyone else? And he began to explain to us um, the things in the scriptures 
concerning himself in Luke 24. Luke 24, uh, 27 and Luke 24, 44. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are those, the scriptures bear witness of me, right? So over and over again, Jesus is making the point that all the scriptures are about Jesus, right? So, so what do we mean by the, the scriptures make Jesus manifest? What's sort of unique to our experience that, say, uh, is different than, say, the Apostle Peter's experience or even the Apostle Paul? They actually saw Jesus and we haven't. That's right. They actually saw Jesus face to face. So in John chapter 1, or I'm, I'm sorry, in 1 John chapter 1, uh, he, he's actually writing about the experience of seeing Jesus. And he does this kind of multi-metaphor thing where he breaks all the rules of grammar, like he mixes his metaphors, and, and he's so excited he's actually stumbling over himself and repeating himself, but he's like, what we have seen, what we handled, what we touched, what we, you know, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen, and, and we bear witness that, you know, that to the eternal life that was with the Father was manifested to us, and, and we write these things so your joy may be complete. He's like... A little he's like high you know <laughs> he's he's a little you know like excited right and he's excited about something that would actually be considered to any greco-roman way of thinking what he's saying in those four verses of first john chapter one would be considered very disgustingly sick why like he's saying something pretty scandalous to the roman world Right. They, they saw physical things as evil, and he's saying the very God himself became a physical person. And they thought the body was a, kind of a necessary evil prison. Right? And they thought, you know, everything human is, you know, they weren't comfortable with their humanity. It's one of the th things that you end up ministering as a pastor to a lot of people. A lot of people are very filled with shame, guilt, etc. over their sinfulness because they've never kind of come to grips with, uh, you know what, I'm a man of flesh. Like Isaiah 6, I, woe is me, I dwell in a, among a men, men of in, unclean people and I'm a man of unclean lips myself. And You know, like you have to kind of come to grips with your sinfulness and realize that God, when you were yet a sinner, that's when God chose to love you when you really didn't measure up, when you really, when you blew it a million times for the, the standards you were raised by. Has anybody ever li lived up to the Christian standards you were raised by? No, for a second. <laughs> for a second. I had not even made it that long. <laughs> All right, so aligning one's life, character, and purpose with King Jesus' life, character, and kingdom purposes. John 10.10, 10. has anybody got that one? That one you should know by heart. Go ahead. Yeah, say it just a little louder and clearer to everybody. The thief. Uh, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So when it says all the reasons for living are futile and frustrating, they miss the mark. Why do I have the word sin there? What's that? 
Yeah, that's the definition of sin. What is, what is, where does that come from? Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Right. The Greek word is hamarti, and it meant it actually meant to miss the target when in archery. That's what sin is. And think, so think about sin. See, we get kind of raised that sin is, you know, like chewing tobacco and spitting or, or uh, drinking beer or lying to your mother or, uh, you know, we kind of, it, honestly, in evangelicalism, we kind of, so... Uh, we've talked before about God's law versus antinomianism, right? So one of the things that's kind of an interesting study is if you were raised, how, how many people were raised Roman Catholic here? Just me? How many people were raised kind of Baptisty? Several of you, right? Okay. So most people who are raised Roman Catholic are raised in a performance-based religion based on God's Ten Commandments and law and you see that you fall short of the glory of God by the standards of his law. Most people raised in evangelicalism have been raised in a performance-based religion based on antinomianism, and because if you, we are creatures made in the image of God, so if we don't embrace God's law, what will we inevitably do? Create our own, we'll make up our own. So we make, how many people are raised on things of law so to speak, the laws don't actually aren't really covered in the Bible. A lot, lot of people here can identify with that experience, like how you wear your hair. <laughs> well, you're a grown up now, so do whatever the Lord wants you to do. <laughs> you know, that's what really all you got to do. Um, right? I mean. You know, whether you wear earrings or makeup or drink beer or drink imported beer versus domestic. No, I don't know. No, I'm just, I don't know. What are, you know, there's, uh, what are some of the law, extra biblical laws that uh, are? Listening to non-Christian music. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, there's only devil's music and God's music, right? Going to the movies. They don't know that Beethoven is definitely God's music. Oh, yeah, like a lot of Pentecostals and so forth were anti-all movies. Huh. I feel like my Baptist church, they were very concerned about like, how you conduct yourself around other people. So, like, like normal societal conventions were like, kind of treated as, like, is, like, how they saw like, you were godly or not in my, in my old church. Okay. So, like, if you were very polite, they thought you were very godly, but if you weren't, you were kind of ungodly. Like, at any point, like, it could be different. Yes. Oh, I thought you said Greg. You said right. Okay. So, yeah, so there's a lot of that. But the truth is nobody measures up to any of it anyway, right? And the definition of, I feel like the definition of missing the mark defines it better in a way that it's like more broad. Yeah, what... Yeah, more maybe more broad's a way of saying what should the mark be? Christ. Yeah, to be like Christ. First John two six says, if anyone says he knows him, he ought to walk in a manner in the same that he in which Jesus walked, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're a Christian, we're saying we're a Christ like. We're a Christ follower. We live like Christ. So 
I'm always a little surprised that some of the younger, more sarcastic guys like don't answer. Like, say, hey, so what have you been up to? Like, don't go like, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? <laughs> I've never had anyone actually do that to me, but I'm I'm expecting it someday. <laughs> Stephen will probably do it. <laughs> All right, so who's who's got some of these scriptures? Matthew 23. Who's got that one? So if you ever think you, if you're ever struggling for faith, the actual root of it is usually whether or not you're willing. Right? So when Jesus prays over Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your you under my wings like a, the mother hen gathers her chicks. And then he goes on to say, but you wouldn't have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Where's that concept, your house in desolate? Where, where do you see those elsewhere in the scriptures? Just a few chapters later, earlier, Jesus, what did Jesus said about the temple? Well, he says that in the next chapter. But what did he say three or in Matthew 21, I think, about... Uh, no, but he did say that. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Now he says, your house is left to you desolate. So he, in, in this Matthew 23, 37 through 39, and then Matthew 24, he starts talking about the destruction of the temple and so forth. He's disowning the Jews and Jerusalem and the temple. He doesn't call it uh, his house anymore. You know, like, sometimes a parent has to kind of do that if you have a rebellious enough kid where it's kind of like, well, have it your way. You know, I'm going to let you eat the bad fruit here. So um, where's the concept? So, so the he's basically calling it your house instead of my house. It's the first time God has ever called the temple not his house. That's a very significant phrase. Then he says it's desolate. Where does that come from? What's that? No. Comes from 1 Samuel. When Ichabod was born, it's the same word as Ichabod in, in the Hebrew. Like he's saying, uh, when when remember when uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were, uh, you know, reprobate, worthless fellows, sons of Belial, as they're called. Fun guys. What's that? Fun guys. Fun guys. <laughs> <laughs> they're like a mold. They're fun guys. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, the ark of God is lost, right? And they come back and they tell Eli that, that the Israel's been defeated in the battle and that the ark of the covenant has been captured by the Philistines. And Eli you know, like falls back out of his chair and breaks his neck and dies. And when Hophni's wife enter, uh, hears the news, she goes into labor. And as she's dying in her labor, she names the child Ichabod. 
Sorry. I was getting all emotional. Which means that, you know, he's saying the glory has departed Israel. God has allowed, the, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence among his people. It's the same as a church that still has all the same Sunday meanings and, regu- you know, religious things, but there's no power of the Spirit there. It's, you know, like, have you ever been to a funeral? You know, you know, when I walked into my little brother's funeral when I was 17, he was 11. And you walk in there and you see your closest brother's body there and, and he's gone. He's not there anymore. And I, you ever notice that in, in human communication, sometimes people always say the opposite of what's really true to kind of comfort each other? So you never notice at funerals, they always go like, boy, he looks good. He looks just like himself. And that's because they put all kinds of makeup and try to make him look, but they, look, they never look good. They never look like themselves. Their spirit and their soul have departed to be either with the Lord or, or to the other just reward right they're gone and the the body without the spirit is dead and it's the same among God's people like religion will always go on usually for several generations but but that's a whole lot different than God's presence being among you so does everyone get that point Josh, you had Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. Jane, read number 10. We'll go on to number 10. We're going to try to finish these tonight. Now, hopefully that statement is very clear. I mean, that is one of the best statements in all all these 12. Really. um, Let's look at, uh, let's start with, uh, someone read uh, Colossians 1, 25 through 29. Deanna, why don't you get that? And uh, uh, Bob, why don't you get 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18? That's kind of a long passage, but. And then we'll talk a little bit about Matthew and Mark. So this part about no one fully grasped their meaning or anticipated their fulfillment because God had ordained that a veil lies over the minds of the seekers. Let's let's talk about that after we read 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18. Go ahead. Deanna, you got it? Oh, you got Colossians. Okay, who's got sec- Oh, Bob has the other one, right? Okay, go, either one of you go first. It doesn't matter. This I 
So that basically just says that all the same things that point 10 says. You know, this mystery was hidden for ages. So when the, the scriptures that Josiah mentioned earlier in Luke 24, uh, if you remember, so first Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And he starts to explain to them about himself, it says. And uh, the, first, the first one says in Moses and the prophets, right? And, then, and that would be one way the Jews talk about the whole Old Testament. If they said Moses and the prophets, that would be one way they'd talk about the, right? And then what happened, but there, it says they're prevented from recognizing Christ. And that's kind of a metaphor on purpose. Like he's, what Christ is actually doing here is all of God's people through all the Old Testament were prevented from fully recognizing the mystery of Christ and his kingdom as these guys now are being prevented from understanding that they're talking to Christ as they're walking. That's, that's an intentional parallel that God is doing, right? And then they, uh, they stop and Jesus acts like he's going to keep going further, and they prevail upon him to stay with us. Why would they? Why would they want to do that? They want to learn more. What's that? They want to learn more. Probably partly because they want to learn more. Also, it's dangerous to, to travel those roads at night, and they're basically just being hospitable. You might as well like be safe and stay with us, right? So then they have a meal together, and what happens? He breaks bread. He breaks bread, and John Luke. Yeah, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread because they had broke bread with him many times and they finally realized this is Jesus. And that's the metaphor of that in the broken body, the shed blood of Christ, we come to recognize what God has been saying through all the scriptures all along. Right? And so when they, when they have illumination as the, and their, the veil's lifted and they begin to see Christ for who is... How did they respond? The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, they go like, they begin to realize, wow, our hearts are burning when he's explaining this stuff to us. We should have recognized this was Christ in the sense they're saying. But, and then they're so excited, they do what? They go back to Jerusalem. They go back to Jerusalem that night. We think that's no big deal. But how many of us have actually walked uh, seven miles twice in one day? We're Americans. That doesn't happen. Yeah, so is that, you've been on, uh, Josh, and, and you guys have been on 15-mile hikes or so, right? Yeah, but it's, so that's uh, pretty hard, right? Were you tired? Were your feet sore? <laughs> you were hungry? <laughs> I mean, no, that's that. I mean, that's a lot of miles. If you just if you just cover, uh, it it takes a pretty good pace to stay at four miles an hour, and so that's three or four hours walking. And they go back in the middle of the night, and it was very clear that at that time period, basically thieves would stay on the road, the highways at night, and rob people who were stupid enough to travel at night. So they're taking their lives in their own hands, but they can't wait to get back and tell the disciples what they've seen and heard. That's what's going on. Right? That's important. Uh, read that Colossians 1, 25 through 29 one more time. Let's start in verse 24 if you want. So read it in comparison to point 10. Everybody skim point 10 again. Uh, 
Look at how much Colossians covers, how much these verses cover point 10. Mm-hmm. So part of what the kingdom of God is about is that Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom and the kingdom of God is made manifest everywhere Christ is made manifest. So like is, if, uh, you know, Adam is discipling Chris, the more Adam becomes Christ-like in the process and the more Chris becomes Christ-like in the process, the more the kingdom has expanded. So when you go back to Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, part of what that means is seek to have Christ reign more fully in you. Seek to have his character and his person and his spirit and his purposes be who you are about, who you are and what you're about. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom, right? Partly. All right, so Bob, give us 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward you. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything against coming to us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kids holding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's look at a couple of the parables in um, Matthew 13. So Matthew 13, does anybody know without looking how many, there's a certain number of parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Does anybody know the exact number? Seven. Right. All right. So, somebody read the parable of the uh, Bob or Daniel. Read the parable of the mustard seed, and then Anvesh read the parable of the unleavened bread, which, in my opinion, are one and the same parable. So uh, yours, Daniel, starts in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. Oh, stay, stay with just that one for now. So what, what does that parable mean? So let's think about this. When Jesus was traveling around Israel in his day, um, based on Acts 1, probably his band of followers never got more than 120 people. Perhaps it was 70 at times. It's clear that the 12 were not the only ones. He sent out 70 others in Luke 10. Right, and it talks about how some of the women supported him from their private means. 
So there were some wealthy ladies who uh, traveled with them, right, because they believed in who he was. Right? Okay, so do you think uh, in uh, the Roman newspapers of the day that was the biggest news in the Roman Empire? No. No, like, you know, probably, uh, you know, when the tower fell that in, in the story in Luke or something like that or uprisings or uh, new, a new tax, right? Okay. Lot, lots of things were probably the news of the day. I doubt if Jesus and his band of followers was the biggest news of the day. Although because of the miracles and because of the large crowds, it obviously was news to a certain extent, right? But how do you think that maybe the Roman Senate and the Roman uh, emperor were relating to it? They probably thought that there was the, a potential nu nuisance in Israel that we might have to deal with. But it wouldn't be any particular problem to crush it whenever we want to, right? What happened when the Roman Empire started trying to crush the church in 64 AD? The church grew even more. The church grew even more to, to the point that Origen had the saying that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church, right? And the church grew through five centuries of persecution. Four centuries, maybe. Right? So, you know, this grain of mustard, I mean, it starts as this, what looks like to, to the observer, some small thing. But what does the average person not know about the mustard seed? It gets to be pretty big in the plant. Yeah, but just the seed. What, what do we know now that we don't? It has all the potential in it. It's got all the DNA, all the chromosomes, all the genetic information that's going to produce that mustard seed, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Just think, Josh is probably the biggest guy in the room, right? Uh, Josh was this small at one time. <laughs> yeah, as you know, Jane Huang was microscopic at one point. <laughs> right? What's that? So, you know, think, you know, how, how many people know what dispensational premillennialism? A lot of you were raised in that sort of thing. What is that? What are some of the basic ideas? Jesus will come. Uh, Jesus will take us up for all the bad stuff happens. What's going to be the uh, fate of the world and the church until then? Awful. Awful. Awful what? Persecuted, killed. Yeah, the, so the world is actually going to decline in morals and and, uh, and get darker and darker. And what's going to happen to the church? It's going to die. It's going to decline and get darker and darker. And there will be, and then every little church that has that dispensational idea will talk about how there will be just a remnant. And they all think it, it'll be just us, our little 23 guys that go to our Baptist church, right? Right? How many people are raising those sorts of mentalities? Mm -hmm. Right, it's getting very wicked out there. And what what does that cause you to do as a parent? You overprotect your kids instead of preparing your kids as dominion takers. You 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 are afraid of the world, right? Instead of equipping them to con be conquerors, right? So think about. Uh, 
Now, there, even we've had that mentality in America since the late 1800s, and ever since we began to preach the great falling away, we have experienced it to a certain degree. But what's the problem with looking at it through only American eyes? It's if you were the, if you observed most American Christianity, you could probably believe Christianity's declining. But what's the problem with that? Not worldwide. Right. Every uh, there there are about seven major world religions: Hinduism, Buddhism. Of course, Taoism is shrinking, uh, whereas Sikhism, a relatively modern religion, is growing. Uh, you know, there's Islam and so forth. Every other world religion is roughly at the same geographical place it started as its center and has expanded uh, out from there. But for the most part, all world religions except Islam and Christianity are, and humanism are shrinking. Those three are growing. The rest are Buddhism is, is declining. Hinduism is declining. The Indian government is getting very per persecuting of Christian groups and so forth because they're, they don't, they think, they feel very, that Hinduism is very threatened. Right? So the parable of the mustard seed is really actually what is going on. Christianity started with its center in Jerusalem. Within the first century, its center was in Antioch. And then event, by the second century, its center was in Rome. And then by the fifth and sixth century, its center was throughout Europe. And by the 15th and 16th and 17th century, its center became America. And now its center is becoming South America and Central America and China and Southeast Asia and Africa. Our Brazilian friends from the ARC, we have around 125 churches. Uh, Jeff, you probably met Tom Padley by now, right, at some of the ARC conferences. And does any of you other guys know Tom Padley? You probably know him a little bit, Stephen. But the guys from Brazil are actually sending teams from their churches. to. They're actually in five countries in Africa planting churches out of Brazilian missionaries, guys that grew up in Brazil and were, and were discipled in Brazil. And there's such a big move of God in Brazil. You know, there's meetings in Nigeria that, that are attended by over a million Christians. There was one uh, meeting in, in Nigeria where over 400,000 people came forward to receive Christ in one altar call. Mahesh Shabda, who wrote the books that we use on fasting, has had over 40,000 people come forward at one altar call in his, some of his African crusades. That's bigger than the book of Acts chapter 2. Right? I've seen footage of like, does anyone know who Reinhard Bonnke is? He's a kind of an African big, big name uh, televangelist kind of guy. But uh, um, in some of his meetings, they actually have to fly helicopters over to give you a feel for how big the crowd is because the crowd disappears over the horizon. And they have to have the speakers up on 30, 40 foot poles so that the sound doesn't can can be go down enough to hit the back of the horizon of the audience before it bends over the earth. Because there's that many people there. Because over one million people will come. 
And Christianity is exploding. They say in communist China, 30,000 people a day are coming to Christ. Now, there are places like Japan that the gospel is making very little impact. But the gospel is growing in India. The gospel is growing in Malaysia and Indonesia, incredibly so. What's that again? Well, it's still illegal to be a Christian in North Korea and you're still persecuted and so forth. But South Korean Christianity, the biggest church in the world is in Seoul, Korea. South Korea. With over some somewhere near 2 million members. They have like 13 services on Saturday nights and Sundays in, in a facility that holds uh, thirty or 40,000 people and most members don't get to get in the service but once a month or so. They, they have to watch it on, on, on out uh, that's, you know, satellited out to other buildings that they gather in because they can't fit everyone in the buildings. And they and the South Koreans send missionaries to the United States all the time. Okay. So, like, if we were to look at perspective from, you know, like, if you're brought up in that kind of thing, you might buy into the fact that it's getting darker and darker and darker. And I would say from a content point of view, uh, Christianity does, definitely needs a rescuing right now but from a uh, from a sure numbers point of view it's exploding right so I forget there's a famous historical person who somehow it was a popular news story that he had died and so he came came out publicly and said the reports of my death of a, what who was who was it Nobel the 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 uh, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated because I'm still so anyway so that's just interesting stuff isn't it you know there's there's nations that Christianity is starting to become the prominent predominant influence again even as our country has thrown off its Christian heritage and roots more and more. What's that? Well, I was just saying there was a group that was very uh, adamant about Christianity, the Shakers, they used to live around the Emerald. Yeah. They were kind of out there, but uh, yeah, they, I don't know much about the whole thing. It was run more of a league, along more of a league. Patterson used to be along with one of them. That's all I know, that they were very adamant about the whole Well, there was a... Uh, there was a pseudo-cult called Shakers. They're, they're Shaker Heights, Ohio is named after them, which is a su rich suburb on the east side of Cleveland. They're somewhat known for a particular style of furniture that they used to make. and uh, But they advocated, as the scriptures predict, that they were actually a pseudo-Christian group. In other words, they weren't really Christian. They, but um, they, and they, they advocated uh, abstaining from marriage, so they were not a very self-sustaining. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to grow generationally when you advocate not getting married. <laughs> All right, let's read the next one, uh, number 11. All right, someone read Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Jeff, why don't you read that? 
So while he's getting that, what's the statement that the people of God are supposed to be the agent of the kingdom? What do we mean by that? We got it? Go ahead and read that, and then you can answer the question. You are the salt of, you are the, salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp or put it under a basket but on a stand, and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so in this thing about the agent of the kingdom, what do we mean by that? If I say uh, I got an agent, what do I want him to do? Someone exacts your will on your behalf. Yeah, someone who promotes or exacts my will on my behalf, right? Representative for, but he's out there to, or she is out there to do a particular task. Uh, like if I'm wanting to be uh, in movies or famous or something, they're supposed to uh, be getting me movie deals and that sort of thing. Or uh, if you're uh, selling ice cream, they, you know, like a sales agent is uh, a person expanding the company's interest, right? So um, if the people of God are supposed to be the agent of the kingdom, what are we supposed to be doing? Going out conquering the world. We're supposed to be conquering the world, right? Expreading the kingdom's influence, right? So if we're to be a nation within the nations, a city set on the hill... Um, and so forth, he, uh, there's, there's some problems. Can we, based on the first verse that he read about salt and saltiness, can we measure our success just on our n numerical growth? No. No, why? Um, because we need depth in order to be world changers. I mean, I'm sure we can get people to come someplace on a Sunday morning, but if the culture is not changed by um, Christ and us being his agents, then we haven't really done anything. Right, that's one part of the, the problem with the mega church philosophy is if we're only changing people in a shallow way, if we're not truly discipling them, if, they're, if we're not truly pro uh, uh, pro providing all the resources a person would need to be a biblically educated disciple, you know, at least our church, one thing we take very seriously, you know, something I have spent literally thousands of hours on is having outlines, podcasts, book lists, foundational articles. If you aren't growing and studying in Grace Christian Fellowship, that's your fault, right? And you're not left at random to know what to study, right? Are you left guessing as to what the best Christian books to read are and where you're going to find some resources, and, right? Now, why do we do that? Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, right? Does someone who cares about their sheep just let the sheep eat any old food? Definitely not. Now, salt can be more or less salty, more or less content, right? So if we're the, so an issue in, if, in the last couple statements, like going back to the statement, we labor until Christ is formed in every man, family, church, and community. If, you know, if we're not taking Christ far enough with individuals, with families, if we're not working towards marriages representing Christ in his church, if we're not teaching fathers how to be better fathers, 
and so forth. One of the reasons we always will have campus ministries, no matter what country we go to, is I want as often as possible to get a hold of people before they've made bad career and marriage decisions. You know, one of the reasons we try, we actually kind of encourage people as often as possible not to date or court until they get to a certain level of maturity. Right? So you make those decisions from a much more kingdom, godly point of view, right? And you don't just use the Pedro principle. Is she hot? You, uh, you basically, like, think, is she hot for Christ? <laughs> That's important, right? Is she on? Which way is she on fire? What's that? <laughs> we 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 draw on we 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 draw on anything here, Daniel. <laughs> Pedro, <laughs> the Pedro principle. <laughs> no, so like how far we teach take each family. How, you know, like if, if our church is getting bigger but by the strategy of watering the message down, which is what the megachurch movement has actually been about, is that a biblical strategy? No. Yeah. That's a good point. All right, so let's think about some things like separate and unique priest. What what were priests in the? What are some priest functions? Because we've taught, we've had Bible studies in this in this uh, Tuesday night thing last year when we went through the we first went through the church, right? Then we went through leadership terms and we looked at the term priest and what did we teach about being a priest? Bob Timer knows this. Yeah, but what do we uh, teach about? the priesthood of believers versus I uh, would say with Catholics and Angli or uh, Anglicans and right so we wouldn't you know it started to be in the third and fourth century that the church started uh, relating to certain elders and certain leadership positions as priests but originally the idea was that all Christians are priests is what I was going for the priesthood and that was an idea restored by the Reformation that would be a big issue in your church, right? The priesthood of all believers is a big point, right? That's a big point in Grace Christian Fellowship. Now, there's certainly leadership in the church, eldership and so forth, but is your, is your pastor your mediator between you and God? No. Who is your mediator? Christ. Christ. And you can go directly. You have bold access before the throne yourself, right? In, in, in that way, the story of Esther is a little bit of a type of Christ kind of thing, right? Remember, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go before the king, right? And we are, all, we are actually exhorted by the New Testament to come boldly before the throne of grace to find time of help in time of need, aren't we? Hebrews 4, several places in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, of course, right? So now based on the priesthood of all believers, what are priests supposed to do? Um, 
Well, yeah, teach. Let's talk about that first. Uh, you mentioned that first. Ezra 7.10 is probably one of the best priesthood verses. Ezra was a Levitical priest. And it says, Ezra had set his heart to what? Study the law of the Lord is the first thing it lists. To practice it or do it, depending on the translation, right? And teach. to teach it throughout all Israel. And if you study all the things that the Aaronic, that is disciples of Aaron, you know, the sons of Aaron, the priesthood of Aaron, uh, and the Levitical priesthood was supposed to do st studying thoroughly the word of God and teaching it to all people is uh, what priests are supposed to do. So uh, does that mean uh, that only the guys who stand at a pulpit in this group are supposed to be teaching the people what the word of God teaches? No, Chris Like is supposed to teach the people what the word of God teaches. That's, it's called evangelism, right? That you are the letter, as Paul says, that they're going to read, known by all men, and you are looking for opportunities to, to teach the full counsel of God to everyone. Guys you work with. Neighbors. Right? Old friends. Some of you don't have as many old friends as I do, but, <laughs> but uh, right? So priests were to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it. You should all memorize Ezra 7.10. It's my, it's my life verse, by the way. One of my two. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. So... Ezra had set his heart in that, you know, the Hebrew means he was in, like nothing was going to knock him off that path. You know, that there's kind of like we're going to win the championship. You know, there's, even in sports, what's kind of amazing to me is that when you watch sports, you get even to the level of getting to the professional level, you'll still have some guys who stand out above everyone else. I mean, that's amazing. You would sort of expect that the lower the level, the more you'd expect a few standouts. But you get up to the cream of the cream of the cream of the crop. And I, I'll, the one time Carl Malone and, and John Stockton and the Utah Jazz made the finals, they were in game six against Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and they had the game wrapped up. And Carl Malone is called the mailman because he delivers. And he's uh, like this beast of a guy has the ball, and all he has to do is keep the ball, and the, they would have won the championship, and the Bulls would have been defeated. And by, with 13 seconds left on the clock, Michael Jordan just grabbed the ball out of Carl Malone's hands and ripped it out of his hands because he wanted to win more than Carl Malone won. Now, I'm not a fan of Michael Jordan. I think, you know, he's a humanistic guy. He's not, like, doing it for Christ's glory. But the truth of the matter is he had that kind of intensity. If we could have that about Christ, isn't that what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, uh, when he's talking about the Olympic Games and he says, run in such a way that you will win that only one receives, lots of people run, but only one receives the prize, right? Mm -hmm. He's saying, hey, take this to the level of being an athlete. Take your Christianity to the level of being a champion. Don't be half-hearted or half-ass or lazy about this stuff. 
be intent on one purpose. Christ, right? Right? Don't we meet people who are more intense than others? The Israelites were intense. Alright. <laughs> that, that was no extra charge to me. Alright. What else did priests do? Bob touched on another one. They offered sacrifices. So how does that apply to us in the New Testament? Is John Luke supposed to lay down his life for our sins? <laughs> Is he? Does Stephen on Thursday nights explain to you how Stephen died for your sins? <laughs> Probably not, right? So how does that how is how is Jonathan Maddox supposed to be a priest offering sacrifices? Right. First and foremost, Christ, he places himself in Christ so that he's in the sacrificial offering of Christ. And then he offers sacrifices of worship and prayer and thanksgiving, intercessory prayer, spiritual warfare prayer, and so forth. We even give of our finances sacrificially. Why, do, why is there tithes and offerings? What's the difference? Right, tithes are kingdom tax that you owe to your local church, 10% of the gross of whatever God increase God gives you. Offerings are for any Christian cause that you that God moves your heart to support. They don't necessarily have to be someone in your local church. Right? But they but a, a, it's assumed that Christians are going to give more than 10% of their income to the Lord. Don't cheat God. and You know, Malachi, he says, you're robbing me, right? Because how are you robbing me? And tithes and offering. So a priest, a priest offers sacrifices, but the one, Christ has offered the one sacrifice of atonement. But the first verse Deanna read, she started in Colossians 1, 24, even though it said 25. So let's go back to verse 20. What, what is it? Right, so, but the first part she read talks about fulfilling that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings. We just talked about that the other Sunday. What does that mean? Does, does Adam need to fulfill what's lacking in Christ's sufferings? It says Christ's uh, sufferings are kind of lacking. So what, what does that mean? What does what Deanna read mean? Right, our participation, koinonia, fellowship, partnership with his sufferings. Right, are Jesus' sufferings complete in me? No. Have I suffered as much as Christ? No. Have I said, not my will, but thy will be done as, as fully as Jesus? <laughs> God, no. <laughs> it's, it's pathetic, right? Have I been a really good Christian? No, I've been a pathetic Christian. Any. We are the fellowship of pathetic Christians, right? Aren't we? So, uh, so priests, uh, you know, priests enter into the sacrifice of Christ, but we do offer spiritual sacrifices, in, especially in worship and prayer. And finances and other things like that. Right? 
So that's a different culture, isn't it? Is the world doing that? No. You think uh, guys that are unbelievers that are in the, you know, uh, engineering school here are really worried about uh, how much they're holding up uh, other people before the throne of God? What's that? Separate two. I'm in the same type of Yeah, a couple guys. <laughs> There's probably a few engineers that are Christians. Right. Our unique priest, government. What's what are what are some of the things that I always emphasize about our view of government? It's not that is the last of the seven Well, this in the seven spheres of uh, seven inevitable institutions, civil government is the last government. First government is self-government. Second government is the family. Third government is the church. Fourth government is educational systems. Fifth government is uh, business or economic systems, vocation. Sixth government is media and social mores. Seventh government is civil government. But what spirit is different about our view of government that, say, Donald Trump clearly doesn't have? Oh. Well, I'm not going for that, but that's that's important. Well, yeah, but I'm just talking about just the basic thing of servant leadership. That's what I'm trying to get at. That's oh. the thing I always emphasize. Do you think like being a servant is high on uh, Donald Trump's heart? No. What's that? He's pretty humble. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are ego heads. <laughs> You know, uh, all right, so culture, laws, what are, what's our view of law? The biblical law is the correct law. So there's all kinds of laws that are anti-biblical, aren't there? You know, our government says it's okay for a man and a man to marry each other. Is that biblical law? Our government says it's okay to kill babies in the womb. Is that is that God's law? No. Is that the law we should be working toward? Our government tax, takes more of your income than God does. So what what are they saying by that? They're actually saying that they're greater than God. If the tax rate is more than ten percent in a nation, that's a very ungodly thing. Very. Right, because they're, that means they're, you're living in a welfare state. What's that? Well, it's something we as Christians need to, to like uh, the first thing we said, a priest is called to teach. Do you, most people don't even know that. One of the fundamental paradigm shifts that happened in our country around the year 1900 with Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives was the idea that the government will save us. Do you think our founding fathers thought of government as an instrument of salvation? No, they were afraid of government. The reason there's a, a written constitution was to limit the power of government because they saw man's heart as sinful and power corrupts, corrupts and Destroy. finish the sentence. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And so they saw they wanted to bind down men by the chains of the Constitution. 
everyone thinks like what are you, what you're brought up in American history and in political science classes now that are run by the federal government. Yes. So you're brainwashed in federal government thinking in public schools. Yes. So you think the checks and balances are what? You think the checks and balances are the three branches of the federal government. First of all, there's four branches of the federal government. The, the bureaucracy is bigger than all three of the others and controls more. And they're not elected or vote or talked about in the Constitution or voted in. Right? So, and what what other check, checks and does Does everyone think that that's the primary checks and balances is the three branches of the federal government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, right? Yeah, that's what Scott Right. So what is that missing? That's missing the two most important checks on the federal government that the Constitution provided for. The lesser magistrates, the states. The states, right. Whatever was not specifically given to the federal government is retained by the states and the people. We lost that concept at the Civil War. And we really lost it with the progressives and Teddy Roosevelt, 1900 and so forth. Nobody has that idea anymore. So there are some areas that you as priests are called to teach about. You gotta know it if you're gonna teach it. Mm -hmm. Right? So the states, that I was actually gonna figure that one would come out last. There's one more that you haven't mentioned. The government was supposed to be lit, limited by what it was given in the written constitution. So in 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower started sending troops into uh, first Korea, then Vietnam, without, the, without a declaration of war from Congress. Does the constitution allow that? No. But what presidents have done that ever since then? All of them. So we don't even pretend to go by the Constitution. Did you, if you go back to Ronald Reagan, each successive president has uh, passed more and more executive orders of which the Constitution doesn't give him any to, to permission to do that. Bush's were in like the 400 level. Obama's were like in the 800 or 1,000 level, and on and on and on. All things that presidents aren't allowed to do according to the Constitution. But is anybody, is there any outcry? No, because actually there's no, there, even the people who went to Harvard and stuff don't have never read the Constitution. Most law students have never even read the Federalist Papers. Probably half of you don't even know what the Federalist Papers are, right? Does everybody here know what the Federalist Papers are? Is there anyone who does not? No, you don't know what they are? Anyone else not know what the Federalist Papers were? What's that? I think I'm seeing Okay, so you on Vest doesn't know, raise your hand if you don't know what the Federalist Papers are. Okay. So at the Constitutional Convention of uh, summer of seventeen eighty eight, I guess it would be, in Philadelphia, they wrote the Constitution we now have. But part of the Constitution was it had to be ratified by I believe it was nine of the thirteen uh, states before it was adopted, right? So it took a couple years to get it, to get them to ratify it. So every day there were debates in the New York City newspapers 
that then would be published in all the other newspapers the next day. So the editorials would be written, and the ones who were defending the Constitution are called the Federalist Papers. They were written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution and became the fourth president of the United States, right? But what no one knows is there were an equal number of anti-federalist papers, people were, who were saying what we now have. They were predicting, no, you're creating too strong a central government and it's gonna grow and grow and grow in power and it's eventually gonna become a monster tyrant. But you don't even get told in schools today that that exist, didn't existed, but though, you can still get those and read them. Guys who predicted that what we have today that we were creating a monster. And if you read the private papers of George Washington, one of my enemies, uh, who I hate from a Christian perspective, because he wanted to create a federal government strong enough to compete for imperialism with France and Spain and England. And they betrayed the revolution for the sake of American power. And they portrayed the, the principles of the Sons of Liberties and the other Christian organizations that had brought about our independence. They created a strong federal government on purpose because there was a philosophy that was just dying at that time. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which is the philosophy of free enterprise and capitalism, had been published in 1776, the same time as our War for Independence started. But that idea hadn't really caught on as a general idea yet. The old idea was called mercantilism, and it was that nations compete with one another for wealth and power, and the way they do it is by controlling colonies, by having an empire. And what George Washington and several of the framers wanted was to sneak in the name of liberty and, and constitutionalism and so forth to create a federal government strong enough to create an empire. And he betrayed the revolution, and of course he's worshiped in our history classes but a, but a Christian should know better. A Christian should know that he was a very ungodly man who sold he sold you down the road. But does do any Christians know that? No, hardly any. Not even the Christian stuff points that out. The truth of the matter is, you're, and you're taught, by the way, that we had the Articles of Confederation, and you're just told that they weren't strong enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got, I got that. Right? But have you ever read them? <laughs> of course it was. There's lots of people who believe we'd been, had been better off if we'd have stayed under them. So let's, uh, anyway, uh, we could talk about economics, race. What's a, what's a biblical perspective of race? Two types of people. Go ahead, explain it. God's people, not God's people. Right. Is there really any other kinds of race? No. Every. Why can a Chinese person marry a Mexican person and they have healthy babies? Because they're descended from Adam and Eve and they have the same 23 chromosomes and the same DNA information and so forth and race is something that men have constructed over time obviously populations with certain characteristics went one way geographically and and in other ways 
but there's no actual difference. Race is a construct of fallen men who hate each other over gender issues. Men and women have, been, have fought for centuries, right? It's called marriage. No. <laughs> it's called humanistic marriages, right? You know, in Western Africa, what is today Ghana, do you know that the Watusi tribe and the Pygmy tribe were, were at, uh, enemies for centuries? Killing each other. And what was their what was their made major difference that they were right? The pygmies were short and the Watusis were tall, and that's what they hated each other about. It wasn't about color. People have hated each other about big nose. You know, you name it. Because fallen men are at enmity with God and one another. All fallen people are racist. And no government laws will ever overcome any racism, ever. Ever since the civil rights movement, we have more opportunity for African Americans and we have more hatred between the races than we used to have. Because the media loves to stir it up because it sells papers and news time. Right? And the Jesse Jacksons of this world and other people like that make fortunes off of it. Teaching young men how to be angry and bitter and rebellious and complain and grumble and so forth instead of taking advantage of opportunities, right? So the real race solution is that we become born again in Jesus Christ and become one race in the church. There is no other hope for the race problems of mankind than that. There's no hope of that. So I say, if you go to a church that's not interracial, get the hell out of there. It's a synagogue of Satan. <laughs> that's pretty intense. Churches should be, should be diverse. And you know, churches should, churches should go to a great extreme. Now, I, there's a lot of churches I know that, that have don't have the wherewithal to achieve that, but at least they do things with other churches. You know, at Bob's church, they have a black church that they become friends with, and they have joint services, what, every three months or something like that? Or, but they, you know, they're trying to build some relationship, right? This gathering I went to for, uh, you know, for uh, concert of prayer, about half of the pastors were black. And uh, the leading Hispanic pastor in Dayton was there, and and I, I hit it off with him big time. We're going to do a bunch of stuff together. So that's huge. I probably overstated things to say a synagogue of Satan. I like to say things for shock value. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an abomination. It really is. You know, secular sociologists rightfully say that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. That cannot be. We need to find a way to do something about that. Really, one of the things that we are up against as a church, we, we have over 30% of our members are black, but we have not been able to produce black leaders yet because the black, the black uh, family is more destroyed and the education levels are more destroyed and so forth. That's why I invest more time in potential black leaders than I do in the white guys. Why? Because I want to have black elders eventually 
that aren't elders just because we want them to be black, but because they're the they're have good character and knowledge and and powerful spiritual gifts and so forth. Right? That's in, that's incredibly important. Does everyone see why? Because there's only if we don't solve the race problems and be able to say to the world. Come fellowship with us because race means nothing in terms of who does what in this church. Calling, gifting, character, knowledge, wisdom means everything. And we could care less what color it comes in. Right? That's what we're going for. And that's why I invest more, I invest more of my discipleship time in the international students and the african-american students on very intentionally because we have to have leaders that are, are very diverse we can't like we're, we've achieved a wonderful thing at grace kitchen fellowship we are probably the most diverse church within 200 miles of us we are but uh until we have like a much more diverse leadership that's that's still not, we're still not there. So, all right, let's read number 11, even though it's late, or 12. I mean, do we want to talk about language? We speak in tongues, no. All right, <laughs> philosophy of education, we could talk about some of these things, but you understand that Christians should rethink all of these things, hopefully. Okay. Someone read number 12. Where are we at? Where do we stop at? Stephen? Or... Number 12. Clarification or caution. The people of God are a primary agent of the kingdom, but are not exactly or completely synonymous with the kingdom of God in these two important respects. A. The citizens of the kingdom never fully experience the kingdom in this life due to sin and finiteness. B. The kingdom and purposes of God are always larger than the people of God. This includes using the all right, uh, let's get the scriptures. John Luke gets 2 Samuel. Uh, Sam Chenpoon get Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, Jonathan get Isaiah 52, 5. And Austin get Ezekiel 36, 20. Uh, Teresa, you can read Romans 2, 1 through 28. Well, just read verses 23 there for now and 4. We don't have time for all of them. Um, John Luke, you probably know the seven institutions of, of the kingdom by heart. We've already stated them. But does everybody know them by heart by now? This, they are something I use in my thinking every day. If you don't know them by heart, you're walking. it would be like walking around crippled when you don't have to. What's that? Yeah, who's, who has good handwriting? Who wrote before last week? Was that Daniel? Write, write the seven institutions in order. And actually, uh, create, uh, the, the, create it like a set of steps going up, where the biggest one is the first one, and they get smaller as they go up, because that's how they should be. All right, so while we're doing that, let's read these scriptures. Who has uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13, and 14? Go ahead, John Luke. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, 
that shall also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Okay, so be ready to read that again. Patricia, you read yours next, and then John Luke read it again right you want, afterwards. You, you want 23 through 28? No, nope, I just want 23 and 24. Gotcha. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay. Again. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So why was it a bigger deal to, to Nathan the prophet? What is he saying? That, you know, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then in the effort to, uh, to cover it up, he had uh, caused Joab to uh, put Uriah the Hittite in the front of the battle, and then they retreated from him so that Uriah would be killed. Right, so he he basically did a very he used his he misused his power to do a fancy murder, very fancy, quite creative. If you're gonna murder someone, I guess you have to get creative. But uh, so, what and how does that relate to 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 Teresa's verse? What does Nathan say? Because you have given the Gentiles opportunity to blaspheme. Right, so David's the king, and he's supposed to represent the people of God. And basically the king of the people of God has committed adultery and covered it up with a murder. Is that a good testimony for Christ? <laughs> right? And what Paul is saying is that one of the problems with Israel has always been that they were called to bring the light of God to the nations around them, but they themselves were covenant breakers. Now we all have that problem, don't we? Like we're called to be the, the closest to Jesus someone is ever going to get is when they're standing near you in the checkout line. That's why if you ever get a chance to hang out with Teresa, she's probably the only person I know that's more outgoing and friendly and making friends with strangers everywhere we go more than I am. But I would encourage you to become like that. Just whether Don't hide behind it's not my personality. Be, bring the love, the kindness of Christ everywhere you go. Be outgoing, warm, gregarious. You know? Seriously. Because you, you, they're the closest to, to, to knowing something about Jesus they're ever going to get is when they are next to you in the uh, salad aisle. Paying too much for their groceries. Whatever. The, the, <laughs> so the kingdom of God is never quite the same as the people of God because we fall short of the kingdom of God in our own sin. It's, it's the, so the kingdom of God is not fully manifest in Daniel Williams. So that's a problem, right? Because he is God's agent of the kingdom. Yet he still needs more of the kingdom. So that's the, that's the irony of the, what point 12 is trying to say. So we go back to point 10. Thus we labor until Christ is formed in every man, every family, every church, and community, and beyond, right? Is any educational system ever fully Christian? Is Dominion Academy like a perfectly biblical Christian school? <laughs> no. 
they have, you know, I know some of the kids. <laughs> I know some of the, some of them are right in this room. I, I know their sins, but uh, no. I mean, is any pastor ever really a great representative of Christ? Ho hopefully better than we were. <coughs> you know, like Evie Hill used to say, I'm not what I am supposed to be, but I'm more than I was. Who's got Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Go ahead, Sam Chenpoon. King James. Now the Lord has said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. I will make of thee a great nation, I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in all these shall all families of the earth be blessed. So right, so in all families of the earth being blessed, so that idea is right there from the calling of Abraham forward. Right? Who's got Isaiah 52.5? Go ahead. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without a cup? Again the Lord declares, those who rule over the power and my name is continually blessing all day long. All right, so I put that in there because that's part of what Paul is quoting from in the in the verse Teresa read, and then the other is in Ezekiel thirty six. I got it from the ESV. But when they came to the nations, whenever the, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, "These are the people of the Lord," and yet they had to go out of the of His land. Isn't that one of the biggest problems in our country right now? Is that a lot of unbelievers have negative views of Christians in the church and somewhat deserve because we deserve it, right? Is that true? Yep. Mm -hmm. That's a problem we're all up against right now in, in, as followers of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. We have uh, been less than uh, what we should be, and the world knows that. Try it, yeah. Don't, don't let my, and not my enemy, right? So uh, Psalm of David, I think it's thirty-three, maybe. Psalm twenty-five. You got it, on this? That's one, but that's not the one she's thinking of. But that's a good one. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my transgressions, but the one she's thinking of, I... Let not your enemies blaspheme because of me. I used to pray it all the time. It's the, it, is it 25-2? Oh my God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. No, that's not the one she's thinking no. of. Let not your people be ashamed through me is the one is one translation of it on Vesh, if you can. Let not your people be ashamed through me. 
what David says. So look at like people are ashamed or something. Read it. But now those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Yeah, that's the one. Read, read a little context there, Stephen. Give us as much context as you think. Uh, yeah, I'll go back to the four. Uh, I'll go to three. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. But not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. But not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor, that dishonor has covered my face. So just in wrapping up, because we won't, you know, it's getting late. Hopefully by now we've gone through these 12 things. We've, uh, it, the last point is very important, that we as the people of God are meant to be the agent to bring God's kingdom, and one of the difficulties we have is we're never fully conquered by the kingdom ourselves. So we must always grow in sanctification, in maturity, in knowledge, in wisdom, in the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the kingdom remember romans 14 17 the kingdom of god is in the holy spirit uh matthew when if i cast out demons by the spirit of god then know the kingdom of god has come upon you so hopefully by now we're starting to understand the kingdom is that realm where god's will is willingly enacted and it, and it affects uh it's god's will extending progressively through these seven institutions uh like that and in, in, in a biblical view, it should be this kind of priority. Notice that he made self-government. Self you know, if you uh, don't have to have your mom wake you up to get to school anymore, uh, hopefully no one in this room needs their mom anymore, like, then you're starting to grow up. If you don't need, uh, like, a parent to remind you to get good grades or to, to hold down a good job or to own your own home or, you know, have your own whatever take care of your finances that's part of self-government is something we we grow in How, where does it begin no it begins when we come to christ can no one who's outside of christ can govern themselves you might be able to change a habit but can you do it for the right motivations no the right attitudes right Colossians 1.13 says that we were held captive by Satan to do his will. And he translated us or transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Every lost person, you know, one of the reasons zombie movies are so uh, popular is, frankly, every lost person is a zombie. They're dead people walking around trying to act like they're alive. That's really what the world is. 
They're the the lost people of this world are are basically zombies. There's no life from God in their spirit. Right? How many people have ex, have experienced and as you've had Christ come into your life and you've grown some that you are a little more free than you were? Free to be what? Who you were created to be by God. So the Bible's freedom is very different than the world's freedom. What does the world think a freedom is? Or say say that again. Let's do too many at once. Go go. Yeah, they don't want any ramifications for behavior. Okay, but basically, the world's freedom is that they want, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I want no uh, consequences and no accountability, and and me, myself, and I is the center of my existence. Right? My, that my holy trinity is me, myself, and I. Right. Right. And so, uh, what it, what actually happens when you're living for yourself? You become more addicted and more of a slave. First and foremost, like we, hopefully, people who recognize it usually start recognizing it because they get an addiction to something like uh, pornography or drugs or alcohol or fears or some kind of emotional. Uh, immaturities or whatever but actually the deeper root is there you're getting more and more collapsed around a universe of yourself right that's what you are before you come to christ you're actually more and more a captive bound up and chained up thinking you're doing what you want to do whenever you want to do it it's just that your will is what's captivated what you want to do is not what you were meant to do, and nor is it good for you. And the more you choose sin, the wages of that sin is death. But the more you are self-centered, the more sin will become what you want. What's that passage in Romans where Paul says, I, I do what I do not want to do? Yep, yeah. Romans 7. Yeah, and not what I want to do, I don't do, right? Because sin, it's not me that does it, but sin working in me, he says. Right? So self-government actually starts when you come to Christ. Like, the world can have a certain amount of self-government. The, the world actually, some worldly people, remember what Epicureans were? It's a Greek philosophy. Epicureans basically were a philosophy said, avoid addiction and excesses so that you can maximize your happiness by living moderately and there's lots of worldly people who live a successful life in the business world and they run every day on their treadmill and they live many disciplines and they um, have big houses and nice cars and and successful in the world to a certain level but what's the problem if if you're doing that all for just you I'd rather work with some really messed up guy that I often start with when I'm discipling. And, uh, but, but God has re at least started to deliver them from their self-centered frame of reference. Right? Does everybody get that? Does everybody see the advantage of that? The hardest people to help grow, you'll see some people who don't grow much in Christ, it's because they're still wrapped around themselves. They're still worshiping at the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. Mm -hmm. All right? So the family, you know, 
in biblically that would be first and foremost nuclear, but second and uh, you know uh, the portion is not very good there, Jane. I think they're actually pretty good. So now one of the things about this for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. I've actually heard Christians teach that you that you so you shouldn't leave till you're married, but actually you have to sort of leave to get prepared to be married. I'm not saying you have to necessarily not live at home. Uh, John moved back into our house until his wedding after he was done with college, and we let him. But 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 he wasn't the same, you know. Like he's now got his own job and his own ministry and his own responsibilities, and you know. Moreover, that's not a biblically informed position. As Jesus never got married, but he moved out and of necessity because he couldn't have had a ministry. He couldn't have done it what God had called him to do at home, right? It really gets down to what, what God's called you to do. But I would say that one of the problems we have today is that the whole classic, a guy still living in his parents' basement when he's 30 and that whole kind of syndrome. We do have a lot of people who really need to leave home in the sense that they need to grow up and start following Christ, you know. It's, that's not only to be done at marriage is all I'm saying. Sometimes you, you probably depending on the family you came from, like in my certain kind of dysfunctional family I grew up in, I needed to live away from home for about seven or eight years before I would be ready to get married. Frankly, I, I was, you know, I lived away from home for eight years before I got married. Thank God I did or I would have destroyed my family. Uh, thirdly, the church. Now, do you know in every culture there's religious institutions, even in the secular, like Nazi Germany, tried to replace the church with like youth organizations and stuff like that that basically had the same kinds of catechism functions and and so forth that churches had. The, the, the communists do that. Every totalitarian government has, they still have a church, it's just a secular church. Uh, educational systems. One of the things I think is the most positive thing going on in our country today is that we actually still, now we have, you know, private schools, home schools, Catholic schools, public schools. We have, especially the whole vouchers when your public schools are failing. People should have choices in education. And the first and foremost thing that you need to know is that in the Bible, the father is the primary educator of the family. And you must not... uh, shrink back from that role the the father that doesn't mean you necessarily have to teach your kids the the phonics and and you can't delegate that to a school or your wife but even to what you delegate you're still primarily responsible before god to, to how your kids are developing as a dad keep that in mind all you dads very very important and today, a lot of people have, uh, even in Christian homes, a lot of people have, um, what, what's going on in evangelical Christianity? In, in probably two-thirds of Christian families, the, the mother is more, more godly than, than the father, right? Mm-hmm. Right? 69% of, of Bible-believing churchgoers are women. Mm-hmm. Only 31% men. That's more than a ratio of two to one. And what do we think of, like, we think of pastors as this effeminate guy, right, that's kind of nasty, nice, and can't stand any of that crap. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them, I just want to slap them around a little bit. 
Oh, pyramids. <laughs> like, no, I mean, we do need to really kind of help men become men in our culture. So one reason I like the, I like the whole Eagle Scout thing, by the way, a lot. So I think it's a, a way of producing good men. It, it's, a, it's a help to produce that. Uh, business, of course, that would also be like economic systems and vocations. Your, your, your vocation is a government. You know, do you think, uh, you know, Bob Timer could just have the job he has without, he had to, he had to match certain governmental qualifications. First, it was called a bachelor's degree in computer science. He wouldn't have that job without that. Jeff wouldn't have his job without a master's degree in engineering, right? But to get that, he had to go through some, some hoops. All governments constrain you. Like, you might need a certain degree to do certain things, right? And your boss might tell you how to dress and how to treat the customers, right? You know, you're working at Kroger's, you can't just go, I don't know if we got any. Why don't you go to Meyer? <laughs> Get out of here, would you? It could bother me. I'm trying to stock the shelves. That you know. sounds like Walmart. <laughs> <That's> Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like Walmart. That's it. Oh, my God. Right? So business, you know, your job is a government, right? You can't just come in whatever time you want, right? When I was a hippie, I was 14, and I had a job selling men's clothes. And uh, the guy who would give me, I should have gotten a ride to work with my mom because I would fight with the guy who get, took me to work because he'd pick me up and we'd drive around and get high for a couple of hours. I'd be like, I, I don't mind getting high, but we shouldn't be late for work like this. And he goes, they don't care. And so you know, eventually they didn't care enough that we got fired. It's a government. You can't just show up whatever time you want and, and show up in any kind of condition you want, right? You know, your job is a government. City of Dayton is a government. <laughs> the media, and I would include their social mores. Unfortunately, the media probably shapes social mores in our culture more than any other institution. But what do I mean by social mores? Somebody knows what that means. Jane. Yeah, I noticed like most people here are young and most people in this room are wearing blue jeans. Why? Except some of the old guys are not wearing blue jeans. And some, even some of the old guys have, uh, their pants are still blue. But Adams are sort of grayish green or something. Gray, I guess. Anyone else? What's, yeah. <laughs> well, you go for a different kind of color. But you know, but people do that, right? They, they, uh, you have like the way you turn a phrase, the way you dress, all this stuff is actually kind of a government in your life. It really is. You know, like even the manners, manners at the table are, are a government, right? All right, and then lastly, civil government. And again, today, almost everyone thinks of federal government when they think of that, but first and foremost, there's city governments, there's county governments, there's state governments, and there's federal governments. And uh, we as Christians should be working to move the government down this ladder, not up it. 
fallen man always wants to increase the top size and turn this upside down. That's why all ancient civilizations were totalitarian. State controlled the money supply, the taxes, every aspect of the culture. And it's amazing that modernity is moving back toward that in the name of being educated. Because that's about the darkest, most uneducated perspective on all this that you could possibly have. But that's what fallen man wants. Fallen man wants more central government all the time. And they actually think central government can solve problems. That's why they vote for who they vote for. And the Democrats and the Republicans are equally evil in this. We should be actually moving to restore more government to states and more government to counties and more government to the family. That's what we should be working for as Christians. You know, even things like the drug war, you know, there's lots of evidence that the drug war has created the drug problem. And uh, that should be moved more and more towards each state decides these things. Yeah. Frankly, each family. So that's what I have to say about that. Forrest Gump. All right, who's gonna who's gonna close us in prayer?